Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of You Could Hide to Colab podcast. We're really excited to be with you today. My name is Daniel and this is my brother Clive. Hello everybody and welcome and my goodness Daniel, we are on we're really in the thick of the compare Isaiah chapters now. We are Clive, I you know, ever since we decided to do this podcast, I've always had it in my mind that at some stage we're going to have to come to two things, compare Isaiah and the other one is going to have to be Jacob 5. And today you're right we're on compare Isaiah. Hopefully we get through enough that we don't do this, we don't butcher this too much, but nevertheless, we've, we've got a lot to get through. And, and I think we've got some really great, well, I've got a couple of interesting things I wanted to raise with you, and I'm sure you've got a couple of interesting things you want to raise with me as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's full of symbolism and things that are understood more in Nephi's time. And I've got a quote for us today that sort of suits in with the things that we're going to try and get to today and try and explain. And now this is a an Enzyme article from, it was sometime in the 70s, I believe. I don't have the exact date on here. This was back when I was skimming through the old Enzymes and I just found really good talks. And one of them, this one's called Why Am I So Unhappy? by brother Vern Green and this is what he says at the end of the um, the end of the talk here he says I am grateful for these eternal truths contained in the scriptures but reading the scriptures is not enough real understanding of these sacred eternal truths remain hidden until we study ponder memorize and work out an understanding of them in our own minds then we must seek confirmation of these truths through prayer and I just thought that fits so well with what we're going to be talking about today because compare Isaiah can be difficult you know you look at it and you can you can understand it on one level and then you can understand it on another level and I feel like it's a lot sort of like the parables that Jesus teaches he teaches them for this way for these people and also this way for these people to understand differently and and I think as well when you're talking to someone about compare Isaiah you're often not talking to someone who's understanding on the exact same level as you because it does have so many there is so many meanings inbuilt and someone might have read an article on this this occasion and someone got advice from someone on that occasion and I, I think it sometimes it just becomes all a bit too challenging but it is it is good to get through and there is some really interesting things on here so let's start off so the the actual curriculum is second Nephi chapter 11 to chapter 19 so it is quite a number of chapters we're just certainly not going to go through every single one today and just to set the context, Clive, you might remember from our last lesson, our last episode, that there's a general conference happening. Jacob and Nephi have got together and they find reason that they, that they need to essentially gather the people and talk to them. And Jacob chooses some Isaiah chapters or him and Nephi actually get together and they decide to teach Isaiah. And then out of that, we, what we have here is Nephi is saying, there's more things that Jacob have said, but actually I'm going to stop telling you what they are. I'm going to stop recording Jacob's words. So if we have a look in verse one, and now Jacob spake many more things to my people at that time. Nevertheless, only these things have I caused to be written. Jacob goes on and on. Who knows how long he talked for? But Nephi is saying, he, he, he said loads of different things, but I'm going to stop it there because I've got something else on my mind. And that is, and he says here, and now I, Nephi, write more of the words of Isaiah, for my soul delighteth in his words, for I will liken his words unto my people, 
and I will send them forth unto all my children, for he verily saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. Couple of things to think about from that verse. So first thing, Jacob's talking about Isaiah to all of the people, but Nephi stops. And if you recall, if you have a look at the heading of what Jacob's talking about, he's talking about, he's talking about chapter 51. He's not talking about, Nephi changes it. And Nephi starts recording from chapter two of Isaiah. So Jacob's talking about one thing and Nephi wants to bring their attention to another chapter. And why? Well, he says he wants to liken their words, liken Isaiah's words to what the people are going through at the time. So he's he's talking to the people and saying, I'm going to record these things and I'm going to publish it out to you because what Isaiah is talking about, you're going to find comfort. And so that gives us a clue as to why Nephi's doing, why Nephi's recording the things he's recording. He isn't randomly scrolling through the brass plates and just going, oh, we'll do that one. He's read them. He understands them. And the things he feels the most pertinent to raise at the time is these chapters that he's sharing, right? Yeah, it's interesting. He seems to be really excited about the things that he's going to be sharing as well. Like there's in chapter 11, there's eight verses, but he says, my soul delighteth five times in these eight verses. So right. he seems to be really excited about the things that he understands from them and the things that he's about to share with everyone. He's certainly trying to trying to get the people on board because he then we then start talking about three witnesses in the very next verse. So he says, so the last thing he says in verse two is that he believes that Isaiah has seen the Redeemer. He says, for he verily saw my Redeemer. And then he says, so and he says, and my brother Jacob also has seen him as I have seen him. So there's three people who have seen the Lord and are all testifying together. Uh, he says, wherefore, I will send their words forth unto my children to prove unto them that my words are true. This is where he says, Wherefore, by the words of three, God hath said, I will establish my word. So he's saying that Jacob, one, Isaiah two, and him, Nephi, three, are all singing off the same hymn sheet. They're all saying, we've all seen Christ. We all share the same message and we all believe the same thing. And therefore, Isaiah's words are my words and my words are Jacob's words. We're all the same. We all are rowing in the one direction. He feels it pertinent to share what Isaiah's got to say because they're, they're all, they all believe the same thing. And this idea that we've got wherefore by, by the words of three is scattered, right? All the way through, right throughout our particular brand of religion. We talk about things in threes all the time. Yeah, it's spoken of a few times in the Book of Mormon. It's mentioned a few times in the Doctrine and Covenants. When I think of three, I think of things like we've got the prophet and then his apostles. So that's three. We've got the bishop, his counselors, really society president, their counselors, elder quorum president, their counselors. You know, that's sort of, it's the three that holds the, the group together. Later on, the Doctrine and Covenants at the mouth of two or three witnesses. These things are true. So it, yeah, it is. It's, it's interesting. I mean, all through the scriptures as well, there's, like I said earlier, you know, it's very symbolic the I compare Isaiah's and Nephi straight away got into that you know three is a symbolic number the symbolic numbers all the way through the scriptures even in our logo we've got the number seven that's a symbol symbolic number 
it's the perfect number, which we'll get into another time. But yeah, I think out, out of the mouth of three, Jacob, Isaiah, and Nephi, us three, we, we three have seen the Lord. I'm going to record it. That's enough for my generations to understand that this is actually true. And words repeated three times. We have that throughout our religion, right? At the Hosanna shout, we have multiple occasions where it's three times we're saying the same thing. Three people are saying the same thing. So there's a lot out of just this by the words of three that has so much meaning in our faith. So we're, so I guess I'm just trying to bit, paint a bit, a bit of a picture here of, of why we're chopping and changing. Jacob's doing a general conference. Nephi stops. Nephi says, actually, there's this, these things which I want to share with you. And me, Jacob, Isaiah, we're all on the same page and we want to share this with you. This is this chapter 11 is the introduction. It's the introduction to that. Nephi's given it a reason of why he's about to hit us with compare Isaiah. And you mentioned before that Nephi is almost excited. He's an excitable character. And this is proven, I think, here in, in verse 4. Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. So he's... He's stoked. He's so happy when he can get all these ducks in a row and say to the people, look, I've been telling you these things. I've been teaching you these things. Jake has been telling you these things. There must be other other various holy people in the city of Nephi that are going around preaching this word. And some people don't just don't don't believe. And so Nephi is just so happy when he comes across this and he's and he said, this is going to help prove to you what I've been telling you this whole time. He says, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. So the idea of typifying, they're a representation. So he's now giving a hint of the words of Isaiah. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the words of Isaiah. And they're very, very symbolic of, of Christ's stories and what's going to happen in the future. The only last thing I wanted to just say, Clive, on verse 11 before we get into Isaiah, there's just the, the last part of verse 5. And he says, Yea, my soul delighteth in his grace and in his justice and power and mercy in the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. From deliverance from death. He really is trying to prove the point to his people. And that's, I guess that's what I really wanted to get across the study that I've done of Isaiah is it's all within context. It's, it's all Nephi's chosen this not for us to be bored or find it hard to get through. We're reading just what I, what Nephi put together for his, for his people. And it's all about that last point there, to be rescued from death. And that's what he's trying to teach people. Believe in Christ and you will be rescued from death. I think what Nephi really likes about Isaiah as well is the, the levels of understanding that we can learn from it. Because he says at the end of verse 8, Now these are the words... And ye may liken them unto you and unto all men. But then in chapter 25 of 2 Nephi, he says, For behold, Isaiah spake many things which are hard for many of my people to understand. So he knows that this is hard to understand. But the things that you do understand, if you prayerfully study them, you can liken them unto you and unto everyone. So, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of layers to it. Okay, so let's get into Isaiah. So as, as we move from chapter 11 into chapter 12, we immediately see that compare Isaiah 2. 
And I was wondering what anyone else in the church has said about this. And I came across an, an old enzyme, like similar to the old one that you mentioned in your quote. And this is from Boyd K. Packer. And he says, most readers readily understand the narrative of the Book of Mormon. Then, just as you settle in to move comfortably along, you will meet a barrier. Interspersed in the narrative are chapters reciting the prophecies of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. They loom as a barrier, like a roadblock or a checkpoint beyond which the casual reader, one with idle curiosity, generally will not go. You too may be tempted to stop there, but do not do it. Do not stop reading. Move forward through those difficult to understand chapters of Old Testament prophecy. Even if you understand it very little, move on. If all you do is skim and merely glean an impression here and there, move on. If all you do is look at the words. So you're not alone. Boyd K. Packer knew exactly what we were all trying to go through. And sometimes, you know, we even us, right? We, we put a bit of pressure on ourselves and really want to understand things to an absolute T. And we want to make sense of things and we want to build our own testimony. But sometimes things are really, really challenging. Sometimes things are a little bit too hard to understand. And the advice here we're getting from Boyd K. Packer is like, that's cool, but just get through it and move on. Don't get, don't get bogged down. Don't put it down. Don't go, oh, that's Isaiah. Okay, well, I'll read that when I've got more time because I have to understand it perfectly before I turn the page. He's saying just if, if it's too much of a challenge, if you if your goal is to read the Book of Mormon, just get through it. There's so much more. The last thing that, that you want to do is get to these couple of chapters and then just go, yeah, you know what? This is way too hard. I actually don't understand it. Why am I bothering? I think it's great advice. I mean, the whole way through, because how many times have we read the Book of Mormon and every time you learn something new and everyone says it all the time. So, yeah, read it and keep reading and if there's other parts which you don't understand just keep reading anyway you'll you'll find something new and the next time you go back you'll find something new again so it's great advice definitely i think one of the differences here as well is it was only it was it's sort of just a hundred years after isaiah is nephi reading these words right so the understanding and the language i would think is more appropriate for their time than ours you know maybe that whole use of much more symbolism it wasn't hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before we read this and we go what what was isaiah even talking about why does he even talk like this where in nephi's case they're reading it and it's it's isaiah to nephi is is closer than joseph smith to us yeah, so right. that point. knowledge gap is not the same but that's all i'll say on the matter and i just want to make sure that you know, people don't sort of beat themselves up. Oh, I should understand this more. And oh, why don't I? Am I not smart enough? It's it's just simply just let's just get through it. So a few things I wanted to raise, Clive, as examples of Isaiah. And I do have one story, actually, that I'd really like to share and help break down the symbolism. But just as a flavor, just as a flavor of what Isaiah is saying, we've got if we move to chapter 12, we've got verse 2. And I thought this was more one of the more simpler ones to understand, so I thought I'd read it out. And it shall come to pass, and see if, as I'm, as I'm reading this, anything sort of striking a chord. And it shall come to pass in the last days when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. 
and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the way of the Lord from Jerusalem. I've got a quote here, and this is from, I want to make sure I get this right. This is Elder Legrand Richards. He says, how literally this has been fulfilled. In my way of thinking, this is the very house of the God of Jacob, right here on this block. This temple, more than any other building of which we have any record, has brought people from every land to learn of his ways and walk in his paths. So this is what Isaiah is saying and why Nephi is telling the people this is that, hey, in the future, this religion, what we're teaching you is going to be huge. There's going to be, we're going to be established in the mountains and the law is going to go forward. This isn't just this small time of us, a band of a few thousand in this in this village, Isaiah, me, Jacob, we're telling you that this is going to be so big and this is the religion that you should be signing up for. So when it's talking about the mountain of the Lord there, now when yeah. I look at that, I think of, remember that movie we used to have as kids? It was Mountain of the Lord and it was about the building of the Salt Lake Temple. Right. Is that what it's referring to there? Yes, yes, that, that that is absolutely right. Here, this is, I've got this one here, which is from President Gordon B. Hinckley, where he said, I believe that prophecy applies to the, to the historic and wonderful Salt Lake Temple. But I believe also that it is related to this magnificent hall. That would, that's referring to the conference center. For it is from this pulpit that the law of God shall go forth together with the word and testimony of the Lord. So the law, that God's law is going to come out of the mountains. And w- what we're being taught is that it's literally the mountains is, is Salt Lake. And that's where the law has come from. Because in the last days, that is where, by some crazy chance, that the church was truly, truly established. Of course, it happened in, in the state of New York with Joseph Smith. But actually, the roots of the church was when Utah was able to become a state and Salt Lake was established and temples were built. When I read the All Nations flow to it as well, I think of at Temple Square, there's, I mean, there's missions just called to Temple Square and there's missionaries of speak many, many different languages and there's so many tourists that go through there just to see Temple Square, just to see the Salt Lake Temple and missionaries are able to talk to them then about the gospel. I went there in the middle of a working day and there was just hundreds and hundreds of people walking through it all day long so yeah i mean what a great prophecy to to look back and see that it's being fulfilled in our day right so there's one more example verse i wanted to give clive that was verse nine so just one more example and before i get into the story that that i'm going to take us through um, which is in chapter 13 but verse nine it says this and and i want to read this out and give an example of isaiah's usage of descriptive words And the mean man boweth not down, and the great man humbleth himself not. Therefore, forgive him not. You go, okay, the mean man. So we've got a couple of characters here in this verse. We've got a mean man, and he boweth not down. And we've got a great man who humbleth himself not. And those two people and their characters, the mean man is is a, a common common sort of folk whereas then we've got a great man who we've got a high society and a low society so what isaiah is saying is the lowest of society and the highest society aren't humble and they can't accept god 
and therefore they are they cannot be forgiven so the mean man boweth not so the mean on the lower end of society and the great man the higher end of society it's regardless of your status you must be humble and seek forgiveness from god and i wanted to give that without context in terms of the story that isaiah is going through here but just an as just an, as an example of if we just pull out isolated verses and sometimes that's actually what it takes when you're reading isaiah is to just pull out an, an isolated verse and go actually what does that one mean okay the mean man boweth not down and the great man humbleth himself not okay so who are they and why would someone be mean and why would someone be great and why does that matter and you, you sometimes just have to look at just just a few lines this verse nine is only three lines you sometimes just have to pull one out and try to get through it try to understand it if that if that's what you're looking to do when you're going through compare Isaiah. does that make that makes sense yeah it's almost like when you read proverbs like it's all just broken up into proverbs and you know you can just pick pick one random one and and you can really see a whole story from it it's actually an interesting verse that you chose actually because i went through all of chapter 12 and i compared it to isaiah chapter 2 and okay and verse 9 this is how it reads in isaiah in the king james version it says and the mean man boweth down and the great man humbleth himself therefore forgive him not now how confusing is that because why would you not forgive someone who's bowed down to the lord whether he be humble or mean. It, to, to me, that means I've changed person. But they've taken the simplest words of not, the meaneth man boweth not down, humbleth man himself not. They've taken it out, and how confusing for anyone who doesn't have the Book of Mormon to read Isaiah and go, I definitely don't understand that now. Yeah, so I'm, I'm ultra confused. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, it's yeah, it's interesting. Clive, one thing I just wanted to mention is verse 16 from chapter 12. And it says, and upon the ships of the sea and upon all the ships of Tarshish, I'm going to say Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. Interesting that there's only one Bible that has Isaiah's verses like this. And that is a Greek Bible called the Septuagint. And if you have a look at the footnote, it actually mentions the Septuagint. The Greek Septuagint has ships of the sea. The Hebrew has ships of Tarshish. The Book of Mormon has both, showing that the brass plates had lost neither phrase. Why does that matter? Well, the Septuagint, from what I from what I can tell from what from the study I've done, wasn't translated into English until 1808 by an English fellow in London, I think. And then the second time it wasn't translated in English until 1844. So Joseph Smith has been able to essentially get this Septuagint translation. That's what it is referred to, the, because the Bible that he would have gone off at the time doesn't have Isaiah in these three lines. The Septuagint has, it in the, in, has this first part in it only. So just thought that was an interesting point that that uh, whole Septuagint idea is challenging to think that that would have been available to Joseph Smith when this translation was happening. Right, just um, a simple verse, massive proof that Joseph Smith was a true seer and prophet. Yeah, it's, I guess it's just one of those ad- additional things that just makes it interesting to you and me. It doesn't matter because we have got a fairly decent testimony of the Book of Mormon, I guess, and we go, yeah, that's, that's great news. And 
when we talked about Nahum and Nahum, that altar only 20 odd years ago with the with the inscription of NHM on it. And we go, well, of course that was going to be discovered. We we believe the Book of Mormon is true. Yeah. But I guess it's just one, one more of those extra things. Now, Clive, I don't know what you want to do, but I've had a really close look at chapter 13 and I've gone through a couple of verses and I thought what would be good is, and I don't want to do this to the death, but I wanted us to go through a couple of verses, verse by verse, and then I wanted to give an explanation of what that verse was. Okay. And I, th- I thought that perhaps it would just help and give examples of what Isaiah is talking about. So at least in this episode, we're not just skipping through it, but we're, we're actually going into something. And so if we can have a look at 13, what I thought I might get you to do so that it's not just me talking the whole time, but if you read verse one, I'll just give it, I'll just give a couple of pointers about what those descriptive words are in verse one. Sure. Just the whole thing in one go. Read verse one all in one go. We haven't practiced this, so let's just <laughs> see how not. we get on. Okay. <laughs> For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole staff of bread and the whole stay of water. Great. Okay. So this is, there's a couple of descriptive words here. The stay and the staff, they're two separate things and the whole staff of bread and the whole stay of water. So the water is the living water. The bread is the bread of life. So it foreshadows a spiritual famine of those who reject the Lord. Make any sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. So then we move over to verse 2. And I might just get you to read verse 2 and verse 3 just together, please. Sure. The mighty man and the man of war... The judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of 50 and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. Okay, so this is giving a sweep of anyone who is a person. It's everyone from a mighty person to a judge, to a counselor, to a man of war. All of these people will be brought into captivity. So everyone, regardless of your social status, what Isaiah is doing here is basically including every profession he can think of. Because, you know, in every profession is every type of person. And so he's covering it. And when I highlighted this in my scriptures, I didn't just do the normal line straight across. I actually highlighted just mighty man, man of war. So that's two different lines. A judge prophet and the prudent the ancient and i've literally high i've literally just lined under each character let's say each example of a person okay clive verse so that's okay so we've covered everyone there let's go to verse four all right and i will give children unto them to be their princes and babes shall rule over them so this is talk so let's think about this and i will give children unto them to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. So this is young, untrained people who it's, it's an example of people who actually aren't rulers. They will be the rulers. So the people who think they'll be the rulers, the mighty men, the judges, the captains, they won't be, they think they're going to be the rulers, but they're not. It'll be the untrained 
most unlikely of people will be the rulers. That's that's the example that he's giving here. Let's go to verse 6. Okay. When a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father, and shall say, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler, and let not this ruin come under thy hand. So, if you think about this, someone is saying, because you've got clothes, literally because you've got clothes, you're going to be our ruler. That's how chaotic, how out of control, how devastating it's going to be if you manage to have something so basic like clothing, you could be a ruler. That's that's the chaos that the world is going to descend in due to this disobedience and due to this straying away, I would say, of the Lord's laws. Make some sense? Yeah, it's not looking good for the future, though, is it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, seven. Okay. In that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be a healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. So the guy who's been chosen because he's got clothes is going... I can't even be your leader. I don't even have bread. Like, it's pretty desperate if you're asking me. All I've got it because I've got clothes on my back. Like, that 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 person who's going to be nominated will be powerless to help in the situation. Clive, so the last one I just wanted to go through to just to sum it up. And again, I didn't want this episode to just be us reading Isaiah and trying to butcher it. But trying to help people just... If, if you if you pick out certain things, it can help you get through it and it can help you understand it if you, if you choose to do so. The last example I wanted to give here is chapter 13. So we're still on 13 and I wanted to give 12. And my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, they who lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the ways of thy paths. Imagine that in this case, again, Sim- this is similar to f- verse 4. There's people who you wouldn't expect to be the oppressors and to be the rulers are the oppressors and the rulers. So he's not necessarily saying that their children are the oppressors and the women are the rulers. It's it's an example. If you think about it back in those days, the women weren't the rulers and the children aren't the oppressors. But he's saying it's going to be topsy-turvy. And... The people who you don't expect to be oppressing you will be oppressing you because he's painting this picture of that Judah and Jerusalem, that entire area, is descending into chaos. And so all these random things that we don't expect to happen are going to happen. Clive, then if if we move forward, there's a couple of things that are easy to understand in Isaiah. And if we move over to chapter 15, if if you're still listening, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) but chapter 15 verse 20 woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter this is easy for us to understand because this is actually what we're going through right now so these other things that i just talked about are challenging to understand i think because it's not what we're going through what Isaiah is referring to is the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, I don't live there, so I'm not seeing a chaotic world. But where I am living, I'm definitely seeing that evil is good and good is evil. 
and darkness is light and light is darkness. I'm definitely seeing that. So when I read this, I highlighted it straight away that I think that this is this is something that I can look at and go, that that is happening in our world. We have this happens 400 times a day. Every time I turn Instagram on, well, not my feed, my feed is really about golf, but in lots of occasions, we're seeing that we are getting our priorities mixed and we're getting what, like it says here, light is dark and, and, and dark is light. I, and I think it says that because that's so simple. Like it's dark, but I'm going to call it light. That's so basic. So we're seeing things in the world now that are so basically wrong or so basically right being called out the opposite way. And we go, what do you mean? It's dark. You can't call darkness light. We're seeing that exact thing happen right now. I mean, in the last 20 years, so many things have changed. But you think about, you know, 100, 200 years ago, anywhere from there backwards, religion was normal. Now you can't even talk about it in the workplace. You know, it's just right. something as simple as that. You know, never mind all the other crazy things going on in the world, but something just as simple as that that was the normal thing. Everyone was had a religion. Religions kept popping up all the time. Now it's the weirdest thing if you find someone who's religious. Yeah, I yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. It's it's challenging now to be able to raise your voice. Like you said, in a workplace, it's not generally not acceptable and it, it is a challenge it is a challenge something so basic something so fundamental and he says in n23 you know quite well who justify the wicked for for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him the righteousness the, of the righteous yeah it probably be read a million different ways but the way i read that is you know people justify wickedness because it's praised now and they take away the the righteousness from righteous people because that's yeah. not you know it's not cool it's not interesting righteous things are not what people want to know these days they want to know wicked things evil things exactly right it's it's a ch- it's a challenge that's for sure what i find interesting in chapter 16 so i'm going to just jump ahead here into chapter 16 is that isaiah sees i mean he's seen all these amazing visions but one of them he sees in particular he sees seraphim standing you know with with the lord and i've looked into seraphim so bruce mcconkey writes about seraphim in the mormon dictionary and he says that seraphim is actually the plural of seraph and which is angel so he sees seraphim so he sees many angels and just like we talked about lehi saw angels in his vision john the revelator saw angels in his vision you know these these visions are something that these great men are able to see all together but he sees seraphim and he sees that they have six wings. But again, you know, we know that angels don't have wings. So again, it's one of those things that we really have to understand the meaning if we want to understand why Isaiah said it that way. Isaiah sees angels with wings, but when it describes angels with wings through the scriptures, it doesn't mean wings. It's symbolic. It's symbolic okay. for the power to move. So he sees that they've got these six wings. So they've got this power to move in any direction and to go anywhere that's just it's a symbol it's it's what it means and nephi would have understood it way more than we can so he would have gone oh awesome you know that's a really interesting thing to write about and then after he's had this vision in verse five it's really interesting and this is i really feel like this is how i would feel he says woe is unto me for i am undone 
because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So he sort of panics then going, I've seen the Lord of hosts. I've seen these angels gathered around him, but I'm unworthy. I'm not this great person that should be able to see the Lord. Well, that's what verse four is, right? Verse four is the Lord. The posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. Verse four is the Lord. It is. And yes, yeah, so, so he panics then. And then again, symbolically, angels come over to him and they put coal in his hand and he tells them to put it in his mouth. And it basically it's, it's a symbol to to clean, to cleanse. It's what it talks about in the footnotes there. It's a symbol of cleansing himself. And so now he is clean and he is worthy and he should feel that way. So there's, there's symbolism all the way through it. And it's, you know, like I said, it's hard for us to understand, but I'm sure Nephi's reading this going, wow, that's really interesting. The Lord then in this vision asks, who should he send to go and preach to this people? And Isaiah answers it in a way that we're so familiar with. He says, here I am, send me. And this is the way that Jesus offers himself to be the one that goes down to redeem the people. Here I am, send me. And it's just interesting that Isaiah says it in the same sort of way. Then in verse 11, he asks the Lord, how long should I preach for? How long should I be preaching to these people for? And this is what the Lord says to him. Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly destroyed. So okay. forever, essentially. Right. For yeah, until, until there's nothing left. You keep going till there's nothing left. Exactly. And now if the Lord said to you or me, you know, I need you to preach until there's nothing left. Now, well, in my mind, I'm going to think I'm not going to be here forever. So it's really up to me to then teach my children and anyone that will listen that they need to they need to continue preaching because this is my mission. And if I pass this on to the next person, when I die, they can continue my mission. And I really feel like this is a big reason in my mind, I read this, you know, sort of missionary minded, the reason that Nephi put this in here, because Isaiah's writing it to everyone that will listen to him. I'm been asked to preach. I'm passing it on to you. If you were to continue to preach, continue my work for the Lord. And Nephi has gone, I see myself in Isaiah and I need to write this down because I've been chosen, you know, as we have, and I want to show to the people who's going to read my scriptures you know my children the generations on and on and they are now going to be told that they need to continue to preach until there's nothing left and i really feel like that's probably why nephi really wanted to write this bit because it, like we you said at the beginning you know he was his soul delighteth in the things that he was going to write so he was really in, excited about the he was excited he was to teach these teach the people he he understood this very well yeah. And he was very excited to talk to everyone about it. Exactly. And so he's gone, I want you to preach it just as I've preached it to you. Until there's nothing left. That's how dedicated we're going to be. Yeah, exactly. All right. So moving on to chapter 17. And I, I don't want to read a verse and try and explain it because that's not, you know, you did a really good job of that. But I have actually found a footnote to verse one of chapter 17. And okay. Chapter 17, verse 1, I've read it and I'm like, what's this all about? And it came to pass in the days of Azar, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzar, king of Judah. And it just, just goes on and on. 
And in this footnote that I've found in, it's actually the Book of Mormon for Latter-day Saint families. And it says, this is the description of verse one. The wicked kingdoms of Syria and Israel were trying to force Judah to join them in a war against great power of Assyria. When Azar, the king of Judah, refused to join their fight against Assyria, they turned against Judah in an attempt to overthrow Azar. Judah had lost some fierce battles, and King Azar may have been very concerned about Judah's future. Awesome. I mean, that's really right. interesting. But actually, it's, it doesn't read like that at all. Days really of Azar, son of Jotham. And then it says he went up towards Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. Yeah. So it does speak of it there, but yeah, I just think it's really hard to understand. And like you said before, Nephi, this wasn't, you know, a hundred or so years later, Nephi was able to write this. Now, I really like Alma chapter 47. It's got a description in there about a specific war that goes on, which we'll get into in a few months time. And I think that's a really interesting passage, how the war took place and, and the way that they organized their people. And I think that's really interesting. But I wonder in, you know, a thousand years time, people read that and go, well, this doesn't make any sense. I need someone to study it, write a footnote for me to understand it. It's not the same lingo. Not the same lingo. Just one other thing I wanted to point out in chapter 17, in verse 20. So he says, In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head, and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. Now, why right. would the Lord shave someone? You know, like that, yeah. again, that doesn't make sense to me. But so, again, what's the, so, so are you going to tell us that something's the razor? Yeah. Something's the well, what's the, what's the importance of it? Why, why is it there? So, right. again, I'm going to refer to one of these footnotes that I found. It says, the razor represents Assyria. The Lord would use Assyria to humble Israel and Judah. The image of the razor consuming or shaving the hair is used because Assyrian captives were commonly humiliated by being shaved from head to toe. But again, right. it, that's not something that we would commonly understand. No, or no, or no about it all. Or know about it all. Yeah, exactly. You know? So again, it's one of those things that Nephi's seen and he's gone, probably gone, oh, wow. The Lord would, you know, shave someone. But to us would go, what, what the heck does that mean? But again, it's it's more humbling someone. It's, it's a humiliation for them. And like I said, it's all can be a symbolic, but it can also be very literal. And it just depends on, you know, the way you feel when you read it. Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, that is, that's really, really interesting I think Clive, we're almost. I almost feel like that this is a two-parter. This is this is a two-part episode essentially because we've got we've we've gone through eleven to nineteen today, and we've gone through and we've tried to explain and tried to help walk ourselves and 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 people listening as well. We're going to have a look at that again next week. We go from chapter twenty to chapter twenty-five. That concludes us for compare Isaiah. So we still got a little bit of this to go through next week. And we might try to explain maybe some of the stories of what, again, bringing it back to what is Nephi trying to tell the people? And that's the most important part for me here. What, what, is, what is Isaiah saying and why does that matter to the people of Nephi? So I just want to finish up with a quote. And I actually want to just finish up with something that I've, I've already read here. And that is from Boyd K. Packer. You too may be tempted to stop here. So when, when getting to Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, 
you too may be tempted to stop there, but do not do it. Do not stop reading. Move forward through those difficult to understand chapters of Old Testament prophecy, even if you understand very little of it. Move on. If all you do is skim and merely glean an impression here and there, move on. If all you do is look at the words. We are right there with you. We appreciate you coming along for this journey of come follow me with us so far this year. And we look forward to finalizing Isaiah next week and getting back to what's happening with the people of Nephi and, of course, what's happening with Jacob as well. Thanks for joining us.